0: My name is David Plummer, and this is the Hold Fast Podcast. Leadership had a profound impact on my path as an athlete, as a father, and now as a leadership development consultant. The purpose of this podcast is to explore what leadership is and how it can be developed and displayed in all of us. Today on the podcast, we have Greg Meehan, the head women's swimming and diving coach at the University of Stanford and coming up on his first time as the head coach of the women's Olympic team. Thanks for coming on and joining us, Greg.
1: Thanks, David. Always a pleasure to be with you.
0: I figured we'd start today by talking about our, our rookie year in 2016, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> since since both of us were were rookies. I was the, the really old guy who somehow managed to end up on the team and and you were the the young hotshot coach that uh, just had an amazing year and your athletes really, I, I thought, took over the games, had some of the coolest moments there. But tell me a little bit what it was like from your perspective as a coach to go to your first Olympic Games.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, something I wanted always, of course, right? You get into coaching and you, you kind of get closer to this level and and you start thinking about some of that stuff and and try not to get too sidetracked by it. I think it was really helpful that I started at the beginning of the quad. So I got hired at Stanford uh, right after the Games in London in 2012. So I think my first day on campus was, was kind of late, late August, early September of 2012. And so it just kind of allowed for that natural four-year sort of runway to Olympic trials. And I think the first big step really was having Maya qualify for the world championship team in 2013. So that, that kind of helped build some momentum. So then it was really just kind of fun to like, all right, how do we find a way to, to get there and to, to be successful? And it was a kind of a methodical sort of approach to it. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, if we walked away without putting anybody on that team, and if I didn't make the staff, like, that would have been okay. It's, it's you know, the, the first squad, and you're trying to figure things out. And um, back to coaching women again for the first time, which I, I, not for the first time, but for the first time in four years, right? I've been head coaching just uh, men when I was over in Berkeley. So just kind of all of those things, like, all right, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. But then, obviously, as it got closer and closer, and, and then with Simone getting here and Leah Neal getting here, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, we've, we've got some good momentum. We have some people that, you know, should make the team. But still, like you have no idea what you're doing, right and <laughs> you're trying to figure it out. Um, and, and you know with, with each step, just like trying to take a step back and gain perspective on where we were, what we had done, and where we want to go. and you know it just it led, led to some pretty like magical stuff. you alluded to that and some big moments, but you know at the end of the day, that was the I think the byproduct of, of just four really good years of work and of like learning from our mistakes.
0: I being really truly honest when I say, I think two of the coolest moments of the games and, and there's a bunch that, that really stand out. Right. I remember at World championships in 15, everybody's like, you know, Team USA looks pretty beatable at this point. We, we, didn't have a, we didn't have a great world championships a year out. That's because you weren't on the team, David. <laughs> but, we, but it all kind of came together, right? Yeah. And, and a, lot of, a lot of young athletes really stepped up in big ways. You know, Simone's 100 freestyle becoming the first African-American woman to, to win gold. That's an amazing, amazing success. And I still go back to Maya, Maya Dorado's right. 200 backstroke. Her not expecting to win that race, or maybe maybe she was the one in the building that did expect to win that race, but to run down Katinka and, and the Hungarian and just put that away in the final meters of that event. I can remember, I, I think I was standing not too far behind you. Yeah, you were right, here. Right, here, right next to me,
1: right behind me. Yeah. And the works at the end. My <laughs> gosh! like, yeah, I act yeah. like you've been here before, brother. Like, <laughs> here, you're going down my face. It's so embarrassing, but it was, it was a really cool moment.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was just, just awesome. How do you get into preparation for a moment like that? Because I don't think you can construct it beforehand. You just got to be ready for the opportunity,
1: and that's the deal, right? Like the the beauty of the Olympic Games is the people that that make those moments are the ones that the moment's not too big for them. They're they can just kind of go with the flow, and and they're prepared, and and they're okay with the outcome because they've they put in the work and they're confident in themselves. And if you have those things, you're going to have a good games, right? How many athletes roll into an Olympic Games who aren't very confident with where they are? and they're swimming at that particular time and perform really well. Like that doesn't happen like all sport, uh, uh, certainly ours uh, maybe even more so than others. That confidence piece is just super critical. And those two I think had it. So, you know, the methodical approach is still really good, tangible feedback. And, And I think, Um, Something that's pretty consistent here with our athletes at Stanford, like they just give really good feedback post-race. It's a conversation, not me telling them, you know, what they did well and what they did wrong, but it's it's definitely a little bit back and forth. And Maya and Simone were that to a T, just really good, honest feedback. And two totally different personalities. You know, I think we always joke with Maya that she remembers things better than they actually were. Um, You know, and and then Simone's just like never satisfied until it all (laughs) comes together. Um, And that's uh, honestly what made both of them incredible athletes. And it allowed them to perform on the stage, right? Like, Maya doesn't remember the bad practices, and she remembers the average ones as really good. So it's like, all right, we're going to roll with that, right? She's (laughs) she's confident, she's positive. And, And with Simone, it's like always being able to be honest about her performance. And it was never about the work ethic. I mean, she works hard, especially for a sprinter, you know, in this program, like we don't necessarily you know, train pure sprint speed and, and there's a lot of development there. And and so like she commits to that work ethic and that program and gets better. And, but like every time that she would race, she would give good, good, honest feedback with where she was at. And you could take that as, as true. So then to kind of get back to your point, like you can't prepare for that moment, but I think if you can continue to evolve and every time you have a, a marker, a performance marker, you evaluate how you're doing, and you make changes, good, bad, or otherwise. Right, just continue to evolve. So that way, when you're when you're there, you're confident in the work that you've done. You're confident in the fact that you've already made the team, like team USA, starting to get on a roll. And then you just you just go out and do your thing, right? And and not having the moment be too big. Yeah, those were some pretty amazing um, moments there that week. I'll I'll never forget that. Not a chance.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, I'm going to, I'm going to put aside a minute, the sprinters, especially for sprinter comment. I feel like sprinters work.
1: Not sprinters in general. Just,
0: <laughs> no. We don't. Try. We, we try a couple to of do. times a week, you know, those sprinters will really bring it a couple of times a week. They're really on. So. <laughs> they, uh, do. they do. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm curious, you know, you, you talk about the, about the feedback. I mean, that's, that's a two way street, right? Mm-hmm. How do you set up a relationship where that's expected that it's going to be a conversation?
1: Well, for starters, I remember that, you know, they are Stanford students and I am not. So they're older <laughs> than me. So I like, okay, I'm just, I need to ask them to dumb it down to my level. I'm like, hey, let's, let's keep it real here. Um, and it's just the, it is the partnership. And I, I hope in every relationship I have with one of the athletes in our program that they feel like they have a significant role in how this goes. You know, at times I'll be more hands off and at times I'll I'll need to press a little bit more, but respecting uh, the fact that they've been good enough and worked hard enough and certainly smart enough to get here that they need to play a role in this. A coach can tell you to do it till they're blue in the face, but at the end of the day, there has to be buy-in from the athlete. And um, I think allowing for that space early just creates moments for conversation and then feedback. And then that relationship really grows. There's some where we need, to, we need to give a little bit more in, until they kind of figure it out. And then we can kind of pull back a little bit more and, and listen. And, you know, that happens at different rates with different folks. But that's super important from our perspective.
0: I really like that kind of the meeting people where they're at, right? Not having the exact same expectations for everybody as they walk in the door, but understanding that there's a learning curve. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's incredibly important. So I'm curious, you, you talked about confidence, the, the confidence that your athletes had yeah. going into yeah. the Olympics. What was your confidence level going into twenty sixteen like
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a great question. I don't know if I can like put my finger on that because it was our first quad here. Fortunately, when I started at Berkeley, I started also at the very tail end of a quad and had a full quad there to kind of see things develop and and took a lot of that with me, but at the same time, until you kind of go through it once, at the, at some point, we don't have any more control as coaches. You got to step up on the blocks or you got to jump in the water and, and get your feet set as a backstroker and go. That's on you. We can help up to that point. But, you know, it's incredibly nerve-wracking, right? The, these are the Olympic Games. And it's, it's nerve-wracking for us because of our own personal investment. But much more than all of that, like you're nervous as heck because you know how much they've invested in this and you want it to come together so badly for them because they deserve it and they've worked really hard for it. But you know (laughs) you can be as confident as you as you want, but at the end of the day it's like things still gotta come together and they've got to make good decisions and all of that stuff. And you know, fortunately we've we've had a bit of that.
0: Yeah it makes a ton of sense. I, I can remember watching My lineup's weird where I'm done early except for the relay. Mm. So really, I'm just staying in it and kind of being part of the team, which is fun in the middle of the games. But I can remember watching you and the other coaches. And it's funny because like if we're in the warm-up pool, you guys look confident as hell, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Everybody's confident over there. But then when you walk up into the stands and you're watching the race, the the nerves come out a little bit. Yeah,
1: yeah. You you should be grateful I didn't just vomit all over you during the (laughs) (laughs) last.
0: That's fair. That's fair. Um, well, you know, this whole podcast came out of my experience with leadership. And I feel like it's something that I came to really late in my career of what really great leadership can look like and how, how relational it can be, how caring leaders can be. I think I, I was raised with a lot of, I would say, probably traditional leaders who were really firm, set a lot of heavy expectations. There was a lot of accountability, but there there wasn't a lot of room for personality or being yourself, being your authentic self, I, w- I would say, mm-hmm. but I, I always look to you kind of from the outside as one of those leaders who was able to maintain that balance. Obviously, there's the hard work, there's the accountability, there's the expectations. You can't divorce that from high performance, but from the outside looking in, it always looked like you were able to, and you spoke into a little bit here, maintain those relationships at a, at a really high level, which I just think is it's becoming more and more important. I think it's always been important, but I think it's becoming more important. Can you speak to how how that grew in you as a coach and as a leader?
1: Yeah, I think just, you know, recognizing over time that athletes are changing, right? It, it's hard to know, like our athletes changing, our coaches changing. I think we're all changing. We're all evolving. And, you know, maybe as a, the younger version of myself, I was more focused in on get the work done and we're going to rely on that because I don't have anything else to stand on because I've never done this before. Right. And then you, you realize that there's a whole sort of softer side to it and the relationships that you build. And, and knowing that, yeah, like on some of them, I need to be uh, a little firmer with. On others, I need to, to know when I can push and, and when I can't. And that's the the part of coaching that outsiders probably don't understand very well. Mm-hmm. And until you're in it, like it's it's pretty amazing the impact as coaches that we have on these young people, on just how they view the sport, how they view themselves. You know, unfortunately, I think there's a there's a large impact on self worth and how that gets related to a coaches or a teacher or a, any sort of leadership role. They're going to put that on themselves. So just recognizing that and. And I think I've, I've learned that over the years, not necessarily trial and error, just, just through experience of, you know, in that scenario, that didn't work for that particular young person. They needed to hear, you know, X, Y, or Z, not, not what I told them, because they, they weren't able to get the message. Now more than ever, uh, I feel like that's really important. In our sport, we live in this world of kind of knowns, right? Like we like to check these boxes as we are going through a training cycle or uh, through a season. So we're getting ready for meets and the, the rug has just been completely pulled out from under most of these kids. And so they, they need it now more than ever, just the ability to kind of like, all right, I, I need you to press here. I know you don't want to, but this is what, what you need to do. And at the same time, how to say that in maybe a softer way where they can, they can understand it. If they believe that you understand what they're experiencing and what they're going through, then oftentimes they're more willing to buy in right? And so that's what relationship building is, is all about.
0: That little level of what's the appropriate vulnerability here, mm-hmm. right? I keep thinking who hasn't been anxious or depressed over the past nine months over something. So I think what you're saying of meeting people where they're at is, is so important. And on the same point, the toolbox is essentially gone. The consistency of practice, preparing for competition, all of those things that are the knowns are all of a sudden unknown,
1: yeah, that has been one of the, the most challenging pieces about all of this. I live in that world, we are very sort of systematic in how we approach a season how we approach, uh, you know, an Olympic year, all of that. And, you know, here we are, another Olympic year back to back. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, it's been a challenge. Um, and at the same time, in some ways, what this has offered is a little bit of a do-over on some things that you like weren't feeling really good about. And by March, you know, we were feeling we were feeling really good, but there were still a couple things for each of them where like I wish they were in a little better spot right now. And so, you know, we've tried to address some of those things uh, over the last nine months. And while that hasn't been easy, I, I do think we've we've gotten better in some areas. And so, we're going to hold on to that.
0: I was telling you a little bit about when I ran into some really great leaders. And, and the one that always stands out for me, I'm sure you can guess, is Jack Roach. He and I worked closely together my my last few years at the international level. And he's all the things that you would want in a coach, right? He brought his values in a very unassuming way to everything that he did. Awesome. He was sort of unapologetically himself while being incredibly compassionate and caring, which I think is it's a tough balance. And one of those ones that he probably navigates well through decades of experience. But are there those values that stand out to you that you're like, when I'm coaching, I can't leave these things behind because they're too central to what I'm trying to do?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I could articulate that very well. I you use the word genuine for, for Jack. I, you know, I hope that I'm genuine. I hope each of the athletes that I work with would say that as well. And, you know, they can read when you're shoveling, you know, right. <laughs> sure. they, they know. And so like just being transparent and being honest. And sometimes you gotta, you're trying to pump people up a little bit and, and there's time and place for that. But at the end of the day, you're, you're also just trying to be genuine. And uh, I think one of Jack's gifts was, you know, on those trips, to your point, he was always working with athletes that didn't have their home coach there, their, their personal coach, which is really hard. You know, their home coach, personal coach gets them all the way to the, almost to the finish line. But then, you know, you've got a three, four week camp uh, leading into the games to give yourself an opportunity to go earn a medal. Right. And that's, that's hard to do. And he always did such a great job with that crew. And so, you know, I hope that for those athletes that, have been part of, of my group on those trips, uh, even if they weren't Stanford athletes, at least felt they were, you know, genuinely getting coached to the best of their ability, even if that meant they were in the same event as one of our Stanford athletes, you know, and, and it is a fine balance. And I think that's why on those trips the, the head coaches try and, you know, match people up, not always by event, sometimes by personality and, and going to yeah. work well with Jack and, and, you know, who's going to work well with somebody else. As I've now like stepped into a head coaching role on some of those trips, it's it's given me newfound perspective on some of those things. The 2017 and 2019 World Championships, being the head coach on on that trip, it was was super helpful uh, to prepare what I would have thought were the 2020 games and hopefully the 2021 games. Yeah, right. yeah. It kind of gives you a little bit of, of newfound respect for people that have done it in the past, you know. And it's kind of like the idea: until you sit in the chair, you don't really know. You got a pretty good idea, but you don't really know.
0: Yeah, falls falls pretty heavy when you're actually yeah, there. Yeah. Um easy, easy to throw stones from over the fence. <laughs> Obviously, you've had a chance to do this in in different ways and shapes and forms throughout your career, you know, as as an assistant, then moving into Stanford as a head coach, but there's this culture of a team, right? At Stanford, you have a ton of control over that. You can say, these are the people we're gonna let on the team. Here's how we're gonna do things. You know, here's the expectations. You get all of this control. But to your point, you get a group of athletes, you'll probably have met all of them because you've worked so closely at the international stage, but there's always a surprise, right? There's always somebody who kind of sneaks through and, and does something special at, at Olympic trials. And you take this group, and I, again I think that collaborative atmosphere helps, but you take this group of people who were just rivals 10 minutes ago. And now we're Team USA, and we got to compete together. I've always said I think one of the reasons we do that really well is the NCAA system. We're we're used to being on a team sport as individual athletes, but how do you, as a head coach, bring that together and balance upholding traditions with innovation and, and doing things a little differently?
1: It is amazing like from an NCAA perspective. You know, you have a team super successful. And then just in one year, right, you may only have four or five people graduate and you may only have four or five new people come in. But boy, oh boy, that that dynamic, that culture can change quite a bit. And so you have to be willing to adapt to that. I think if you're if there's too much rigidity in in the approach to team culture, especially in in today's day and age, you can struggle. So for us, it's important at the very beginning that we establish our non-negotiables in our culture. Then you let the team sort of evolve themselves throughout the course of the year and find out what their personality is, how they are gonna define themselves, how they are gonna lead. You know, and I think that's the beauty of it. We don't have to go the whole time as the, the puppet master. It's kind of like, all right, set some things in place. Now it's yours. You gotta take it and run with it. And sometimes that lasts, like our responsibility and role lasts a little longer uh, and sometimes a little bit shorter. Two years ago, 2018, 2019 uh, season, we had seven freshmen um, uh, on the swimming side, two on the diving side. And so it was just like a huge number. For We don't keep a very big roster, right? Our, our roster is 21, 22 people. So we had nine of our, I guess if we include the divers, nine of our 24 were freshmen. So it's just huge percentage. And I think we just took it for granted, like we we just kind of assumed that they would get some things. Like they just didn't get it right away, and it was taking longer, and it was frustrating, and wanted to beat my head into the wall. But we stayed we stayed true to ourselves, and like, okay, no, this is not negotiable. This, this is just how we're going to do it. And then there's other parts where we kind of let them take it and and make it their own. And while we were absolutely. I don't want to say horrendous. We were not good that fall, like in terms of performance. But we came out of that November meet and then just like, okay, we got to get better in here, here and here. And ultimately it's going to be up to you. And they took it and ran with it. And, you know, we, we won the national championship a couple of months later. But I think just that, like you have to set some things in place that are non-negotiable. And some of it's really silly. Some of it is, is super basic, but important because it's like, this is what we value, and you may not agree with that. But if you want to be part of this, like you got to fall in line there. And then there's some other areas where, hey, you got there's a little bit more flexibility. So I think that's been part of the reason I, that I think we've had sustained success here over the last you know five years from um, five six years really from an NCAA perspective. And I try and take some of that to working with international teams. It doesn't always work, but. There are some things that are, that are kind of fun when you get on a trip like that and you have to come together very quickly. And usually the excitement of having made the team helps, right? Um, right. <laughs> you know, but, but that's kind of
0: been the approach. What are some examples of those, those non-negotiables? What's non-negotiable in your program? Some of it is really simple, David. It's like,
1: we are going to start, if it's 6 o'clock, 6.15 is when we start our mornings. Like, we start on time. That's a really simple one. You start on time, that's good. Uh, you've got to communicate. We require communication just on a daily basis. Like if you're struggling, we have to communicate. If we're not communicating, we don't know how to, how to help you. Simple thing like, again, another, when we travel, like, if I see a hotel towel in our team area, like I'm going to lose it because like, those are things that, you know, everybody, teams like go and they just leave 20 hotel towels that aren't theirs. They just leave it at the pool, mm-hmm. right? Like just little things. And then there's, we have a lot of race rules on, on kick counts and breathing patterns and when you can take your last breath. And usually they, like freshmen w- will make that mistake once and then they won't make it again. You know, it's so like the very first dual meet and they breathe, you know, at a certain point they're not supposed to breathe. It's like, ah. um, So like, those are some of the things, um, you know, and some of the non-negotiables will change year to year, I guess, a little bit based on, on what we feel like they need. But those are, you know, just kind of like some little things that honestly, it adds up if you don't keep it in check.
0: There's some of those things that you're talking about that are just structural. Yeah. It's really hard to be really high level without some of that basic stuff, mm-hmm. right? But the communication and the and the feedback, you've mentioned feedback quite a bit today. How does that play into, you talked about even the non-negotiables changing based on what's needed from the team year to year. How do you go about getting that feedback?
1: Yeah, it's a, a great question. And I think that process is also different. It's definitely Tracy and I like identifying areas where we feel like we're strong and areas where Culturally, we need to be better, and then it's having conversations with our captains and our seniors because they have the best perspective. Okay, what are you seeing? Like this is what we see from the deck level, but that's where we can, as coaches, you can be super in tune with with how they're doing. You can be really observant, and I think we do a very, very good job of that. But at the end of the day, we're not in the locker room. We're not sitting at the table having dinner with these guys, and so getting real tangible feedback from our leaders. Like, all right, this is what we see. Where are we missing? And relying on on their uh, experience and their ability to communicate to us. And then we can step in, we can help guide them. It just depends on where each team is and, and how strong the leaders are in terms of their own uh, ability to communicate, you know, because we don't want to do it all. We've got to be able to turn that over to them. It just really kind of getting
0: the temperature of the group have you seen any changes with communication obviously there's covid communication yeah, yeah, but yeah, even yeah. in the years leading up to that have you seen any changes in how you guys need to communicate or respond or give feedback absolutely Any, any differences? yeah yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think um maybe not
1: over the last four or five years but i think over the last 20 years like Calling out a kid in front of the group doesn't work anymore, you know, in in most aspects. And so, you know, if we're kind of getting upset about something, oftentimes we're going to stop someone at the wall when everybody else is going and, and address it then. There are times like if you're, you know, breathing, if you breathe inside the flags and you get touched out in a race, like everybody in our team area behind me is going to hear about that. But in terms of the day to day, like we communicate more one on one. And then oftentimes we might use the group setting to address a couple of of things that we've seen. You know, if there's like three individuals that maybe you're kind of falling into this little pocket, we might address it with the team as a whole. And then for some individual stuff, normally we're addressing it one-on-one because kids they, uh, I mean, let's call it what it is, right? The world of Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter, the likes and favorites and retweets that weighs on them and how they are viewed publicly even if they don't have an ego, there's still some value in that. And so calling out somebody in front of the group or embarrassing somebody in front of the group, that doesn't fly anymore. We've just totally avoided that. And and really just kind of getting direct, looking someone in the eye and being able to address that sort of one on one.
0: You know, we, we work pretty closely or I work pretty closely in my day to day with some student athletes. And I I think they're in this really difficult position, at least as leaders get to maybe junior or senior year and coach looks at you and says, we need you to step up as a leader. And I think there's some who easily step into that. And there's a lot more who struggle with that transition because it means I got to now hold my friends accountable. What does that look like? So how do you, how do you navigate that? You know, you're talking about not only getting feedback from your leaders, but you're also talking about empowering them to be leaders. How do you go about that process and making sure that leaders are ready to lead?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that Tracy has kind of brought to my attention over the years is like, people don't care about what you know until they know that you care. And really embracing that, uh, not just from the perspective of our relationship with the student athletes, but peer-to-peer and showing empathy, right? Apathy, no. No. Yes, if we can empathize, then that can kind of tear down some some walls and some barriers. And it's not perfect. But I, I do feel there's opportunity for peer to peer leadership, if they can be open and honest and just let their guard down a little bit. And maybe it's a it's a challenge elsewhere as well. But here, specifically for Stanford folks, like, these are type A personalities who have not failed very often in their lives. And that's a real thing. And working through that and like making failure. Okay. As long as you learn from it, failure without learning is not a good goal to have, but we purposely put them in a position to fail early in their career athletically. And even as a team, like early in the fall, we're going to force some things where they've got to learn how to deal with disappointment and failure so they can learn from it, adapt, uh, learn how to have adversity and then like, okay, press forward. We have to get to that place. In some years it's been harder than others in just like, all right, let, let your guard down a little bit, let some other people in, because if you can recognize what someone is struggling with, then it gives you a better avenue to engage in conversation with them if they're open to it. But then if you only see where they're struggling and you don't identify where you're struggling and open yourself up to that, then it doesn't matter. That's just a one-way street. They don't want to be told what to do all the time. If you're not going to be willing to, to listen as well. And so creating an environment for that, and that's, it's hard. And this particular mm-hmm. year, it, it's been darn near impossible because of just gatherings and everything else. Like we're, we're not often able to just like sit as a group. And we've, we've, I think, done our best through that, but it's been a challenge for sure.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, a challenge in the best of times and 2020 has not been the best no, of no, times. No, You've talked a, a little bit about handling the pandemic. What's gone well? What do you finding as positives through the last eight, nine months? I would say, if
1: nothing else, that, you know, this group, gosh, if they can't be resilient after this, they're going to struggle in life, right? I mean, they've had to constantly adapt and evolve. Our county here has been super restrictive from the beginning, right? We were one of the first places in the country to kind of have a shutdown and ever evolving, like, are we going to be able to compete? Are we going to be able to have a season? Can we live on campus? Are we going to have in-person classes? No. Are we going to be able to live on campus? No. Now we've got to find a place to live in Palo Alto, which is, you know, a challenge in and of itself, right? Now we're going to have these meets. No, no, we're not. Okay, now we're going to have these meets. Okay, we are. And so it's just like the constant (laughs) ebb and flow. Like our, our only racing this year has been with Berkeley. Fortunately, you know, they're in a similar spot and Terry and Dave have been gracious enough to, to work with Dan and I to get some racing together. And it's been great, honestly, but you know, that's it. And we see other teams hosting invites or going to invites. And so I think that weighs on them. The weight of that is, is a little heavy, you know, and then as we project out to our, what we, we're on the quarter system, right? So our winter quarter, are we going to be on campus? I think so, but I don't know. Are we going to be able to travel? I think so, but I don't know. Every day when they're waking up, they're working through all these different scenarios and they've never had to do that. And so my hope is that one of the good things that comes out of this is being pliable, right? Being flexible and and just like, okay, you got to go with the flow and it's not going to be perfect and it's going to be messy at times. But at the end of the day, we still need to be proud of the work that we're doing because ultimately Mm -hmm. our goal every year, and this is a staple for our program. we, We use this phrase all the time. It's like, we want to be the best version of ourselves, and the best version of ourselves in COVID looks different than the best version of ourselves pre-COVID, and, and hopefully after COVID. But at the end of the day, like we still need to be the best version of ourselves, even with all the limitation.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I, you know, we talk a lot of, about resilience, and I, I think one of the biggest tenets is if you believe what you're going through right now is going to make you better and make you stronger that usually leads to more resilience. So I I think you're framing that in a really cool way. I just really appreciate it, Greg. Just awesome to get the chance to talk to you on this stuff a little bit more and and hear your perspectives. And I'm super excited to be a fan this time around and hope it goes as smooth as it possibly (laughs) can going into Tokyo, man. Yeah.
1: Well, I appreciate the opportunity to to spend some time with you. I love talking swimming. I love talking sport in general. So this has been really fun and appreciate all that you've done for USA Swimming continue to do. And hopefully we'll, we'll have a reason to celebrate at the end of next summer.
0: The Hold Fast Podcast is produced by Premier Sports Psychology and a part of the Premier Podcast Educational Series. For more information, please visit premiersportpsychology.com or check out our online educational suite at mindsetprogram.com.